and we're Kerber's Kids. The Kids Talk, your monthly graphic novel review. Welcome back, kids, and thanks for listening as we delve into our September graphic novel read here on Kirby's Kids, and that would be none other than Full Metal Alchemist, which was released in Japan on January 22nd, 2002, and finally had its USA release May 3rd, 2005. And yes, folks, the kids are back. Ray is here to help review. And Ray, how are you? I'm great. How are you doing? Doing great. Doing great. Hey, what were your general impressions of this read before we delve deep into this particular selection? Well, once I got myself used to flipping the pages in the wrong direction, it was fun. I I, I enjoyed it. It's a good bit of character-driven, story-driven you know, storytelling that was uh, really enjoyable. True, true. And it seems we've been on a kick of writer, artists, and creators here with the past several selections. And we'll see yet another one when we head into our October review of Hellboy. So let's go ahead and get this one started and getting into our Kirby Colonel, where we'll delve into a little bit of knowledge about Jack. Hey, Wilford! Fire up the tractor. Time to harvest another Kirby Colonel. So now over into our Kirby Colonel. This is brought to us by Jack Kirby historian Stan Taylor. And it's on the beginning of Jack Kirby's animation career. And what we mean by beginning is after he'd become established as a comic book creator, he then in the 1970s made a transition over into animation for a period of time. And that's really what this deals with. And my reasoning behind making this our Kirby Colonel is just because of the close association between manga and anime. It seems over in Japan, there normally is the debut of a manga on a newsstand one month, and then shortly thereafter, here comes the anime series to the TV airwaves, or to be streamed nowadays too. So in 1978, Marvel had leased to an animation company the rights to produce a new animated Fantastic Four series. Mark Evanier, which I know you'll be familiar with that name, as he's also an official Kirby biographer and also colleague, younger this is, of Jax, had gotten a job writing for Hanna-Barbera and their comic line. He heard through the underground that Hanna-Barbera wanted a Kirby look and feel for their new cartoon. Evanier took it upon himself to go to the animation director and tell him that Jack Kirby was available if they really wanted a comic feel. A quick phone call from Hanna-Barbera Studios and Kirby was back where he had begun, working for an animation studio. Kirby and Marvel agreed that this working on the Fantastic Four series would count towards the pages required of his contract, so they had no problem. Plus, it took him away from the nitwits in the office who were jealous of them. Man, you know, you got to figure it this time. (laughs) There's a lot to be jealous of as far as Jack's concerned, particularly at this stage of his career, Ray. But at this point, why would you want to be messing with Jack, you know? I mean, the guy is... The guy has proven his chops. I don't really understand, but there's always egos involved, it seems like, when you talk about these early comic shops. So True, true, true. As true to form, you know, Drac was known as being a quick worker. 
And Hannah Barbera was a low-budget animation producer who had figured out a way to make cartoons on a shoestring. Where they used to make a cartoon on a $35,000 budget with TV, they were now slated only three to $4,000 an episode. To keep within these tighter budgets, Hanna-Barbera adopted the concept of limited animation, also called semi-animation, which quite frankly doesn't sound that animated to me, and practiced and popularized this, particularly with the United Productions of America, or UPA studio, which was once had a partnership with Columbia Pictures. The UPA style of limited animation was adopted by other animation studios and especially by TV cartoon studios such as Hanna-Barbera Productions. This was implemented as a cost-cutting measure, but at the same time, this also fed right into the strengths of one Jack Kirby. The rest of these productions, when not being worked on there at the studio, got farmed out over to the largest Japanese animator, Toho Studios. And they had also entered into a contract with UPA. So there's our Japan tie-in, Ray. So with Jack out from under the yoke of deadlines and assembly line comic creations and all that behind the scenes fighting. He then worked with the Debate Friedling Studios, a working partner of Hanna-Barbera. DF had started out as Warner Brothers Animation Studio when Fritz Friedling and David Debate and others separated from Warners. And Ultimately, Jack went on to be in charge of the artistic direction for this Fantastic Four animated series. Another interesting twist in all of this is that he couldn't get away from Stan Lee. Stan would come out to California to start up Marvel Productions and help bring some of these comic properties to not only animated series, but then would also eventually start working on movies and things of that nature. One of the interesting decisions made during this series was the removal of the Human Torch because apparently for licensing purposes, he was licensed over to somebody else at the time and they inserted this robot called Herbie, which was quite interesting given that it was 1978 right there in the throes and the heat of Star Wars mania, kind of looking R2-D2-ish, you know, much to the chagrin of core Fantastic Four fans. Guess it served its purposes for Saturday morning viewing. This was uh, one of my first superhero cartoons. I remember re- I remember seeing this one on the TV. Oh, cool. Cool. Yeah, I also do too, along with Super Friends and specifically that whole Challenge of the Super Friends series that started there in the 70s. Was this, uh, was this the first time Jack worked with animation? No, I, he actually was painting cells super early in his career. I want to say when he was a teenager or in his early 20s for, you know, the shorts that would be shown at a matinee, a double feature or during a serialized viewing of stuff in the 30s. So I know he had dabbled in that before he had broken into comics. I mean, he was basically demonstrating his artistic chops. I knew we had talked before, I think, about his involvement in the Thundar the Barbarian project, but I couldn't remember what his first instance of, uh, you know, dealing with a, a, a TV series cartoon was. Oh, well, for TV series, it, it was right here in, in 78. But as far as animation in general, that would go back to those shorts 
of 30s, where he was basically coloring in cells as he was basically woodshedding and learning his craft and just needing to get paid. He must have been pretty irritated when Stan Lee got uh, involved with this one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because, you know, what's crazy, Stan had recently moved to California and was brought in to help produce the cartoons while Kirby oversaw the art direction. So it's like, yo, you know, Stan, I, I, <laughs> I, thought, I thought we were done collaborating, but here you are again. So just can't shake Stan. <laughs> so with all of this, let's go ahead and transition to a little creative chatter and discuss our writer of Full Metal Alchemist, Hiromu. Arakawa. Whoever is this artist and this writer, I must meet them. Creative chatter. As the creator of an award-winning series, Full Metal Alchemist, Haramu Arakawa is among the most successful manga artists of this century. This series has sold over 64 million volumes and earned two anime adaptations and two separate theatrical releases. It, as well as Arakawa's other work, falls into the category of shonen manga, or Japanese comics targeted at preteen and teenage boys. And, incident, Hiramu Arakawa is a pen name. Her real first name is Hiromi, and she's among a growing number of female artists in the shonen manga industry. It's kind of funny that we're talking in, in these terms, but I guess this particular art form, and comics for that matter, Ray, have been so predominantly male-dominated for such a long time. It's refreshing to see this type of success occur in this line of comics, which was geared towards, and still is geared towards, preteen and teenage boys. Yeah, it's strange the way that what careers women were shut out of in the 50s and 60s. You would not have thought comic books would be one where it would, they would have been threatened by female writers and artists, but apparently they just had no place there. They didn't, <laughs> right? I don't know if there were not many women trying to break in. My, I suspect there were people that would like to have done that, some women that would like to have done that, but wasn't the interest there. I think you and JJ talked quite a bit about some female writers when the... A Captain Marvel movie came out, right? And and they were some of the first. That is correct. As a matter of fact, I believe Roy Thomas's first wife was a co-collaborator with him in development of that whole Ms. Marvel series. So that right there over on the writing side of the house. And then you started to see several female artists become recognized as really good colorers and inkers. And then eventually move their way over to being pencilers and then eventually taking over full lines. But again, it was a long haul. I think there were several key events, but one in particular that really did shake things up was when Warners bought DC and they popped a female in charge of DC. And that really set a strong tone and laid the groundwork for one of my favorite editors, Karen Berger, to come onto the scene and work with the British Invasion series of writers, and then founded the Vertigo imprint, and you know, the rest is history. She wrote the, uh, didn't she write the introduction to our very first graphic novel for Kirby Kids, uh, Sandman? She did. She indeed did, because of her long standing editing collaboration with Neil Gaiman. 
Yeah, she essentially found Neil, and that was pretty amazing. I mean, as, as well as she's responsible for recruiting and bringing over Alan Moore and also Grant Morrison. I mean, it's it's crazy the embarrassment of talent and riches, if you will, that Karen, as a talent scout and editor, was able to attract, bring over to the States and or work distance-wise, at least with those UK talents, and really build out DC's line and then eventually do the birth of the graphic novel, essentially, with the creation of the Vertigo line. Yeah, it is pretty amazing. It is pretty amazing. But back to Arakawa, she considers the growing number of female shonen manga involvement a generational shift, and that there were female readers who found those shonen very entertaining and often more interesting than the usual shoujo manga which is basically geared towards or marketed towards young women and girls. Ten years later, we were old enough to draw, and so we made boys manga. And she explains that this incensed a number of female drawers in this area. So there was actually a, a cultural rift, or if you will, a give and take, and even some friction between some traditional shoujo artists who were making comics for young women and girls and then some women who said, you know what, I'm really not into this style. I want to make something more action-packed and for the boys. And so I found that quite interesting and in what she had to say about that. It is interesting. It is interesting to think about the different pressures in uh, culturally. You know, here we had a, a women's liberation movement that was fairly strong that may have helped. I'm sure that I'll haven't said that though. I'm sure there were women here in America too that were that gave some of our early female artists a hard time for drawing comic books. But I think there in Japan it was she was probably fighting a even a bigger battle than she would have here in the US. And maybe that's somewhat indicative uh, indicated by her choice of pen name. I think you nailed it right there. I mean the fact that she felt she had to use a pen name in order to gain acceptance. And also I think she's a bit of a private person. You don't see a lot of pictures of her. Instead, you see a lot of her illustrations, and she's been very purposeful about that. She says that she is an introvert. She is quite the geek herself. She's a hardcore fan of Star Wars. And was I found this quote really interesting. She was seriously uh, tempted to buy a giant inflatable Darth Vader, but she laments that why did Padme, oh, here we go with the prequels, fall for Anakin? In one afterward reveal in one of her book, she says, you know, I think everyone can agree that the lady deserved better than what she got. Yeah. Of all the unbelievable things in Star Wars, you know, lightsabers and an animated little green guy that can fly through the air and do all kinds of flips. The least believable thing in those prequels is Anakin fall, or uh, uh, Padme falling in love with Anakin, who's such a jerk. <laughs> I, I, I think he used the, I think he used the force on her. That's the only thing I can. Yeah, really. <laughs> And she binge watcher of B-movies, and she said she likes the way they make her think and makes her ask the question, what the hell is this? That's crazy. So the fact that, you know, in a B-movie, I mean, I know you've been watching recently a lot of Roger Corman stuff, 
And there is. When you are on a shoestring budget, you got to get creative with some of this stuff. And I can see why she could gain some inspiration out of it. That's absolutely true. I found those movies. So I watched Attack of the Crab Monsters the other night. And then this isn't a Corman film, but it's kind of done in a hammer style. Uh, Frankenstein's Lady or Lady Lady Frankenstein. And I, I've just been watching a lot of old B movies. And the truth is, even though they are, you know, sometimes have hammy actors or actually the acting is usually pretty decent, but, you know, it's just low budget. They are very much thinking movies in a way. They, they make you think a lot more than blockbuster big Hollywood movies that kind of play to the same tropes or the same genre. Genre films, I should say, yeah. Indeed, indeed. You know, she also comes from very humble and hardworking background. She said many elements of her background is as a farming family in Hokkaido and really came to influence her work and her approach. She says that though her farmer background has, she's learned the value of hard work. She's learned through farming that you get back the amount of effort you put into something. The more you love your animals, the more they give back to you. The more you take care of livestock, better their meat will be. This is not only the concept behind one of the major themes in Full Metal Alchemist, but it's also something that she puts into practice every single day of her life. And it's clear from the examination of her entire career that she's a monstrously hard worker. And matter of fact, her little uh, avatar that she loves to put in every one of the books to kind of represent her instead of a full-blown picture is one of a little whimsical cow. And it reminds her of the farm that she grew up. And is now, I mean, there's also a bit of a pun there, isn't there? Her name, yeah. <laughs> Ends in Moo, yeah. Yeah, she seems like a super likable, authentic, geeky, you know, just somebody you would want to spend the day with, right? Yeah, it, totally. And, and it looks like she embraced geek culture as an escapism out there on the farm. She had a rural upbringing. It was a great way for her to escape after she had put in her time along with her other family members on the farm and during that hard day's work. And it was just pure escapism. And she let her mind wander. And this is this is great stuff. I can sympathize. I grew up in the middle of nowhere and my grandfather was a farmer and, uh, you know, just had one brother. I did, had to ride my bike a couple miles to see friends. And it's a fertile ground for imagination. You know, you have a lot of quiet time, a lot of space to wander in, a lot of space to think in. And there is a lot of hard work, you know, but it's, uh, yeah, so it's a simple life, but it's a life that um, really leaves you plenty of time to be in your own mind. And, you know, you brought out the key word there, and that is wander and think. You know, folks get this weird impression that because you're living out in a rural area that, you know, wow, you, this must be some form of mundane life. No, 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 far from it. If actually it affords you the time and space to actually think while also living a, a pretty challenging life uh, from a physical labor standpoint, particularly working on a farm. I mean, I can relate, uh, although I didn't grow up on a farm just to the left of me where my house was uh, built as a kid was a cornfield and then across the street from the, the little development of houses was a cow pasture and cow farm. So I, I get it from that standpoint and saw the on a daily basis how hard those farmers worked. I, I tip my hat to them, but man, the, you get a lot of individual accomplishment on a daily basis, you know, done good. 
So what's interesting is she came up with, during the same year she developed Full Metal Alchemist, another work called Stray Dog. And one can actually find a lot of similarities between this particular work and Full Metal Alchemist. As a matter of fact, this story depicts a product of a genetic experiment done by the military. She is a literal dog of the military as she is part dog. Yeah, I found that to be a really interesting setup. I think that sounds like a great comic. And it's interesting how far apart her themes are from her personal experience as a young person. Indeed, indeed. In 2000, she published a chapter of a manga called Demons of Shanghai. It was mainly a comical piece that featured a group of demon hunters working in China. Then in July of 2001, first chapter of Full Metal Alchemist, which chronicles the adventures of the two brothers we will get into here momentarily, Edward and Alphonse Elric. Then as that was beginning to gain steam, here you go, an anime adaptation hit and was received very well in 2003. Though she assisted in the initial development and decided to let them work and she thought it would be best for the anime and the manga to have different endings since her manga still had a lot of story to go. As a result, the 2003 anime diverges dramatically from the manga as does the movie that finishes up the series, The Conqueror of Shambhala. Now, Ray, I can say I have viewed the first five episodes of that 2003 anime series, and those are quite faithful to her books. You begin to see the plots deviate tremendously the deeper you get into the series, but I have to say blow for blow and frame for frame or panel for panel, you know, the first two, three episodes essentially cover this first story that we're going to read. So it was a pretty faithful adaptation. However, Full Metal was also popular enough to warrant a second anime adaptation. Arakawa was nearing completion of her manga in 2009. A new and more faithful anime adaptation was announced, and this would end up being Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood as it was released in the States. And I know JJ is currently viewing that right now. And he's having sessions, viewing sessions between him and his son, enjoying that. How involved was she in the animes? Not heavily involved at all in the 2003 anime, but very much involved in the 2009 anime. And because her manga was finishing up right around that same time, so she could devote more time towards getting Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood in canon, if you will, with what she had developed on the pages of her manga. So just wrapping this up, other noted works. She published a manga called Raiden 18, in which a cheerfully corrupt scientist, Dr. Tachibana, creates a Frankenstein monster that she wishes to exploit for her own ends. And that was in 2005. In 2006, she published a one-shot called Sotin no Komori, a bat in the blue sky, about a young girl and former ninja assassin trying to atone for her sins. That same year, she started the autobiographical manga Noble Farmer, in which she discussed her farming background. She's also illustrated and helped write the five-volume manga Hero Tales in 2006. Arakawa went so far as to travel to China to research this manga, which had a motif of Chinese wuxia drama. See, this should appeal to you, Ray. And focuses on a young boy and his band of friends discovering their destiny. Arakawa is clearly very taken with China 
as Chinese culture is a reoccurring element in her work. In addition to hero tales and demons of Shanghai, Arakawa created the country of Zeng, I guess that's how you'd pronounce it, X-I-N-G, in Full Metal Alchemist, with Zenji's culture clearly being analogs to Chinese culture. And I thought I started to detect elements of that in one of our stories, at least. Yeah, that might be that might be Shang, but I don't. I'm not an expert either. I'm... Ah, Shang. Yes, you're right, Ray. It is Shang. It is Shang. There's some themes that you can see already running through her work. She obviously likes to play with this idea of what it means to be human when you're not quite human, right? There's there's a lot of kind of half half humans, or in this case, we have an empty robot human, <laughs> a soul and a soul in a robot suit. She seems to have a theme about atoning for past sins, like, you know, the the second chance hero, and then some kind of moral quest, which those are tied together, I guess. But those are three things I can see right away that run through quite a bit of her work. Indeed, indeed. And you know what? Let's hop over to our literary aisle, where we'll delve into chapter one, the two alchemists in Full Metal Alchemist. Arlando, there's our literary aisle. So right here we are over on a literary aisle, and this book was very interesting in how it was put together. You essentially have in the first two chapters one story, and this is for lack of a better term, the origin story of these two characters, at least in their first adventure that we get to see. And then I felt that the last two stories, which are one-shots, pretty self-contained, were very entertaining adventures, but not as epic as the first two chapters here. What were your impressions of how this book was broken out? Yeah, I will say that as as you're reading it, at first I thought it was going to be a very organic transition from book to from chapter to chapter. Meaning, I, since the first chapter continues into the second one, like with one long story arc, I just sort of felt like it was going to keep doing that. But then it when it flipped into more single episode adventures that was a bit of a surprise no i'm not a bad one but it is some interesting things i think about this these first two issues the origin story which is something that a lot of comic artists really revel in is so quick (laughs) like you get a you get sort of, it's almost like a, a bit of a, a flash of their origin story. And then she dives into their, one of their obviously early adventures, you know, so they don't seem as competent. They seem a little like they're still kind of growing into their skins. And then after she's got the story rolling, then she does the flashback and gives you the fuller version of the origin story. And I thought that was quite interesting. It was. It really gets you as a reader fully immersed fast. And I appreciated that. I thought it was a a different take. And one, actually, that I had seen done quite well in our July read when we did Daredevil Born Again. JJ and I had covered this, and we, we both made the remark that it was refreshing to see the insertion of an origin story done in kind of flashback reveal instead of taking the reader arduously through yet another origin story. And I think she does a fantastic job here of peppering out these reveals and does it really well contextually with the current challenge that Alphonse and his brother are undergoing at any given time. And I really appreciate the care that Ed and Alphonse Elrics, the Elrics brothers, are doing here as far as 
Okay, here's the challenge. Oh, well, in this aspect of their origin story, we're going to flash back to this seminal moment because this is going to have impact now on maybe perhaps how they react or what they're looking for. It's very well done. Yeah, we've had this a couple times, actually. So we had it in Lone Wolf and Cub. Very much delayed origin story. Uh, in a way, we had it in the Doctor Doom and, and Doctor Strange, but that's a little different because that's they were sort of echoing an origin story that had been already told a number of times. Yeah, I thought it was quite well handled. And like you said, origin stories can become very self-absorbed. And this one never runs into that danger because you fly past it initially and then come back when you really care. Yeah, and not to go too deep as to spoil this entire story but essentially we open up in a frontier town and you have this real interesting melding i I greatly appreciated this between faith and religion alchemy here and science and it was interesting to see the dynamic tension that she plays off of when discussing all of these together. Yeah, I thought so. It's one of those stories where religion was a very heavy theme, but done in such a way that was thoughtful and entertaining. I I noticed one thing straight in the very beginning in her introduction, she makes a bit of an apology for how she uses the the term alchemy because she kind of reinvents it for her own purposes. I I think that's kind of cool, actually. I thought it was interesting that she apologized for it. I think she's, a you know, again, as a person who's very self-effacing and humble, I think that comes across in how she sees herself even in her own writing. But I thought that was neat. It, it really is a good introduction to the world to have this religious leader who's leaning on a, not to, again, we'll stay away from spoilers, but leaning on a, a, a gimmick of sorts that involves alchemy. And then, you know, just the different, she's setting up a lot of fertile ground. Let's put it that way. It looks like alchemy can do a lot of different things. And, and we're kind of eager to learn about how that fits into the world. Yeah, and it's even viewed as so powerful that you have a state alchemist. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. This, so, now, so now we're actually building this into the fiber of government that you would have a state alchemist, which, again, Edward is. And apparently, although I believe in this book, he's only like around a 14-year-old boy. He is fully acknowledged as being a state alchemist, which these state alchemists are held in very high esteem due to the actual power that they're able to wield. Uh, Yes and no. High esteem, but also some fear and trepidation, right? Like, as we come to see in some of the other stories, not everybody wants to see. These guys are about like the sheriffs of the Old West. They're seen a little bit as law unto themselves. And then, of course, some of them probably abuse that. So, it, But it's interesting here, even in the first comic, we have alchemy used to create gateways. Alchemy showing the potential to raise the dead. Alchemy that has a steampunk vibe, you know, used to power machines. Or in the case of Alphonse, basically giving him a shell for his soul. There's just a lot of different interesting uses of alchemy. Indeed, there are. And I also felt that some of the naming conventions within this book were of the time. And, you know, I can't help but go Harry Potter on this thing. So please spare me for a moment. But when I saw that the, you know, legendary Alchemo amplifier was called the Philosopher's Stone. I was like, okay, I got you. And I understand the, the context with which you, you you use the term philosopher and stone, but I just felt that this meshed very nicely into the zeitgeist of that time. Because again, this came out in the early 2000s, which was the peak of 
Harry Potter mania as far as readership was concerned. And then the films were starting to come out and, and churn and become very popular too. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I think I think uh, the first Harry Potter book was like 99 or something like that. So yeah, I think that's true. Um, I'd never really thought about her making that connection before. For me, that's, you know, it's just such a oh, classic thought the the philosopher's stone right the i remember actually reading an old uncle scrooge comic where they find the philosopher's stone too so <laughs> ah there you go cool and it, it was also cool to see here some legendary creatures a chimera actually appear in the pages so it's interesting the it's interesting to see the fantasy elements along with the technology elements that she pulls on along with, you know, this magic or this alchemy that she also pulls on too. It's a it's an interesting gumbo of of sorts and it works. Now do you understand the shift from the light gray lines to the to the heavy to the dark lines? I got the impression that maybe it was when there was like a super involved action, but I don't think that was always the case. I'll have to say that from a readability standpoint, I found the the gray as opposed to a heavy black or you know a true black lines to be a bit of a challenge. I, when, I know when we got to a page where it was actually in black ink, I was like, ah, I can actually see this one. You know, <laughs> so that one. I don't know if that was done for for cost effectiveness, you know, the ink saturation or what. But I thought that was an interesting choice. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that because in doing my research for Manga Month, which was September on Kirby's Kids, there were different grades, meaning in quality of manga that are produced. There are the very thin paper, paperback books that appear on newsstands that are made for mass consumption. It's almost as if, Ray, you took what we were used to growing up with paper, a newspaper, but it's newspaper quality paper thrown in a book, pretty cheap to produce. And therefore, the inks and the saturations and everything that you're talking about right there, I'm sure would come into play because they're trying to limit the costs of something and get it out to a wide audience. Now, in a more fully realized book with you know heavier stock of paper and something that is meant to be put on a shelf and, and savored gone back to again and again and again, I would expect a higher quality of renderings and some inks and things. But since this was, we both viewed this book digitally, what we were given is essentially the the originals as far as the template. Yeah, I agree. Some kind of clean scan or something. Yeah. Um, just to go back to this Philosopher's Stone for just a second, I was, uh, she drops a lot of ties or hints to other literature and to kind of uh, mythologies or archetypal things I thought was interesting. First of all, the brother's last name being Elric. I can't help but think of Elric Melnibene. Uh, there was another, what was the other reference I mentioned to you? We had mentioned Elric with Morcock, and then I'm looking here. There was, there was, and it, and it had, and it had to do with journeys. And then at the end of this story, well, you know, of course you have the Philosopher's Stone, and at the end of the story, she she has uh, two of the deadly sins, lust and gluttony, show up. And that that was clearly a seed for... She does a really good job of seeding some longer-term story arc elements that don't matter a lot in the context of the specific story, but you're thinking, ooh, these guys are going to show up again. You know, I thought they were interesting, uh, well-drawn, lust and gluttony, had kind of neatly uh, defined characters. Like, all the characters in this felt very different to me. She did a good job of, of making the everybody feel unique yes no she she absolutely did looking at this 
I am so impressed with these different elements that she was able to assimilate together and make it feel original. Yeah. yeah it's just good storytelling. I mean, this is just, uh, just straight up. You're in the hands of a competent storyteller and you, you know that it just, uh, you know it when you're in the hands of somebody like that, you know, that they know what they're doing. They've got ideas. They have, you know, thoughts about where they're headed. They're not inventing on the fly. I just got that feeling from her that she's got this bigger universe in her head and it's going to come out at the pace she wants it to come out. Yes. No, uh, agree. Agree. And in chapter two, the price of life, that's essentially bookends and brings our first story to its logical conclusion. Again, it was very, very strong. I felt emotionally invested in the characters. I really liked the Rose character and what she brought to the table. And how her interactions with the Elric brothers, Edward and Alphonse, allowed them to divulge more about their background and you know where they came from, these powers that they now have. Well, she she raised the stakes. She, she raised the stakes too. I mean, it was not just about putting down a villain. It was actually also about exposing that villain in a way that would. Uh, cause all the the believers to see you know and the falseness of this guy's organized religion exactly and, and you know i don't think that our author here wanted to attack religion or spirituality i think what she was going after was attacking hypocrisy and for lack of a better term, false gods, if you will. Absolutely. Absolutely. You got that impression right away where that the main character, Ed, that he is, you know, he makes the point that he doesn't, that he's basically an atheist, but he doesn't do it in a judgmental way. He's just kind of basically, it's like, this isn't really a question of religion. This is a question of a crook. Somebody, yeah, he's, he's a, he's a seamy, gross uh, manipulator and uh, a, a huckster, right? That's right. Yeah. Who basically had this entire town at his beck and call and entrapped. So, the, so that was cool. And we're Kirby's kids. Hey, shout! Hey,